I'd like to invite you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. You follow along as I read Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14 and finishing at the end of the chapter. Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. One of the most difficult passages in Paul's entire epistle to the Romans is what I have just read to you. Romans 7, 14 to 25. Indeed, all of Romans 7 poses great difficulty in understanding the flow of Paul's thought as we attempt to grasp the whole of Romans chapters 6 through 8. J.W. McGorman said, My nomination for the most difficult passage in this letter to interpret is Romans 7, 1 to 25, unquote. I concur. It is my nomination as well. Romans 7 is certainly one of the most pivotal passages in all Pauline theology. The way I want to bring this approach to understanding this passage is this morning to give you, by way of an introduction to this text, several reasons why I hold the view that I do. And if you're going to understand where I'm coming from as I interpret this passage in the days to come, you're going to need to know why I believe it is to be understood in this way. I don't want to take the time to give you a list of all of the various approaches to this passage, for that, I think, would take us an unnecessary amount of time. I do not want to give you, as last Sunday, ten reasons that will take us to 12.30. But the view that I want you to grasp and the view that I hold is, I believe, a standard view, probably even the prevailing view in our time, 
However, I do recognize that good men disagree as to exactly what Paul is referring to here in Romans 7, specifically in verses 14 to 25. For instance, some have asked the following questions and come to their own answers about whom Paul is specifically referring to here. For example, is it Paul himself as a mature Christian who speaks here? Or is it Paul the unregenerate man speaking, looking to when he was out of Christ, before he came to Christ, as one who has been himself slain by the judgment of the Mosaic law? Or is it Paul representing himself autobiographically, but also representing the Jews in general as a whole, and how they all have been killed by the standard of God's law? Or is it Paul actually speaking here of the person of Adam, the first man, like he did in Romans 5:12 and following, and how Adam himself violated the commands of God? Or is it some combination of these ideas? Well, as we go through the passage, I will endeavor to show you what I believe to be the right view, the one I believe that best fits the biblical and the exegetical and the theological data, and then, as we go along in the next couple of weeks, I will interpret the passage verse by verse, showing the various approaches and how they do or do not fit what I believe to be the right view. And I want to state up front that my view is this. I definitely hold the view that Paul is describing himself here as a mature Christian. A mature Christian. A Christian who is very sensitively and very discerningly describing the tension he finds between remaining sin and his ultimate deliverance from it. That's what I believe is the best answer to the question, who is the wretched man of Romans 7? And I want to give you this morning, and just as I said by way of introduction, four reasons, four reasons why this is the best interpretation of the passage. Number one, number one, I think it's the best way to understand this passage as Paul is discerningly speaking of his own mature Christian life autobiographically because of the overall context of Romans 6 through 8. That's the first reason, the overall context of Romans 6 through 8. I would suggest that the overall context of Romans 6 through 8 gives us a clue about the identity of the wretched man. Now, if you remember, Romans 6 is speaking about how, among other things, we've been delivered out of our slavery from sin into a new slavery of righteousness. We covered that in detail when we covered chapter 6. Romans 8 will focus our attention upon the life or the realm of the Holy Spirit and our relationship to Him, including, by the way, Romans 8, verses 18 to 30, which describes how we will be glorified in the future. And this, beloved, is where Romans 7 fits nicely in between. In between our having once been delivered from sin's slavery and before our final deliverance from sin's presence, we live in the tension of dealing with remaining sin. That's Romans 7. That's the tension. 
Someone reminded me a couple of weeks ago about a statement that G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher who preceded Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel in London, had said to his congregation, as long as I'm here, we will never get out of Romans 7. I understand the sentiments, don't you? As long as I'm here at the Bible Church and as long as you're here at the Bible Church, we'll never get out of Romans 7. It will be forever and always, at least in this life, with us. He was saying, of course, G. Campbell Morgan, that the whole of the Christian life is a continual battle until, as Paul himself describes in Romans 7, we are delivered from the very presence of our remaining sin. And as he goes on to explain in great detail our future glorification in Romans 8 and so many other wonderful things. You see, there is a fundamental tension within the Christian life, which in verses 14 to 25 of Romans 7 is none other than Paul's recognition of remaining sin. The recognition of it is absolutely crucial for us to understand. If you've been around our dean of the ministry training center, Dr. George Zimick, for any length of time, he's got a pet phrase that I think we ought to use more often, although it seems a bit quaint, or maybe even in some cases a bit hard to understand. He calls this tension of Romans 7 our homardiological hangover. You say, what does that mean? Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. And sin is hanging over us. Sin is in us. Sin is ever before us. And the homardiological hangover is that which every regenerate person has to discern. Not just battle, but to discern. And that is exactly, precisely what Paul is describing in my judgment in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. He is as someone who himself has been freed from the bondage of the curse of the law of God and who one day will be completely delivered from the earthly sinfulness by his glorification in Christ, but who in between is discerning the nature of sin in his life. And that's what you and I ought to do. We ought to be the discerners of the nature of sin in our lives. Not just know something about it. Not just have a vague acquaintance with it as it has its way with us. But to understand sin in its essence. To understand the sinfulness of sin. To understand the gravity of sin. To understand the weight of sin. And by the way, this particular concept of the in-between time, in-between Romans 6 and Romans 8, as it were, is what theologians call in this Pauline tension, the already not yet. The already not yet. Let me see if I can describe for you what that means, because it's very helpful for me as I understand my own Christian life. If you are a Christian, you are already delivered from the sphere of sin's dominion in your life. In other words, you're delivered from its condemning penalty. And in some levels, you're also delivered uh, from its dominion or power 
at least in the sense that before you became a Christian, all you could do was sin. But now after you've become a Christian, you've been able to at least say no to sin as to its powerful dominion in your life. You're no longer a slave to it. You're a slave of righteousness. And that is precisely what Paul has taught us in chapter 6. Whereas once you were a slave to sin, now because of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, you've been delivered from the dominion or the sphere or the realm of that slavery to sin, and you've now been transferred by Christ through His cross, by His death, in His Spirit, to a new life existence, a new sphere, a new realm, a new power source. The power source being, of course, the Holy Spirit, who can give us what we must have in order to say no to sin. And for the first time in your life, for the first time as a Christian, you can say no to sin. It will tempt you. It will attempt to empower you. It will try to rear its ugly head against you. And you can, for the first time in your life, in the already dimension of the Christian life, when you receive Christ, say no to it. Say no to its demands. And there's a not yet component as well. The not yet component, that's Romans 8. That's where we have not yet been fully and completely glorified. We will one day, if we name the name of Christ, and that's a legitimate relationship that we have with Christ, not just the profession of it, but the possession of it. If that's true, you who once were delivered from a slavery to sinfulness will one day completely be delivered from even the reality of it. What a thought. Whereas once you were delivered from its penalty, its condemning nature, our glorification suggests in the not yet dimension that we will actually be delivered from the very presence of sin. But until then, until then, there is a middle place. There is an in-between. There is a tension that these theologians, and rightly so, in studying Pauline theology, call the dimension of the already not yet. That tension in the middle. And that's where we discern the nature of the spiritual battle. In between these two great realities, there's a fierce tension which needs to be understood between being delivered from the penalty of sin, which occurred when you first received Christ, And when you will be delivered from sin's very presence, when you're glorified in Christ, there is this in-between time. We call it sanctification. Growth in holiness. And that is where the battle rages. And it is right here where Paul discerningly describes himself as a very mature believer looking back, as it were, on all of the Christian life that he'd lived to that he'd lived up to, up to that point. He's looking at his life. He's looking at his Christianity. He's looking at his life in Christ. He's looking at where he is. Now he will go on to describe the wonderful and the glorious and the liberating dimension of Romans 8. He will talk about that. But for now, in discussing this in-between, this tension 
He centers in on the battle which rages within when he compares his delight as a believer in the law of God in the inner man, verse 22, and the warfare that remains with us because of sin in our life, even our Christian life. He is speaking, I believe, as a discerning Christian who even as a regenerate person who is bound for heaven will acknowledge that remaining sin is his portion until he's delivered from this body of death. That's what I think is going on here. Secondly, there's a second reason why I believe this to be the case, and that is Paul's use of personal pronouns to describe himself. That's another reason why I take this view. Because I believe it best accounts for all of the personal pronouns, I, which at least as far as the English Bible text of the English Standard Version is concerned, he uses some 25 times. In verses 14 to 25, he uses the word I, that personal pronoun, some 25 times. And in addition to the eyes of the passage, there are some 13 me's and my's that also are in the text. And that leads me to believe that Paul's autobiographical depiction in these verses was his own present perspective, a mature one at that, yes, his own mature present perspective of describing himself as a regenerate man, a mature Christian who was recognizing the remaining sin within him which indeed was precisely articulated by him in that concluding summary statement in verse 25. Look at it with me. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's the tension. Now this doesn't mean that he was only describing himself for Surely he was describing all of us as Christians who are needing to discern the tension of the already not yet dimension. But you can see the tension through the lens of his own experience as a mature believer who was recognizing his remaining sin. He says, I know I'm already in Christ and I know that there is something yet for me in my glorification in Christ, but there's something in the middle that I have to discern. And when I see it, I recognize that tension. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. These personal references then lead me to believe that Paul is describing himself. And along with point number one, describing himself as a mature Christian. Number three. Number three. Paul's use parallel use of the phrase, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He uses it two places. He uses it here in Romans 7, and he uses it in Romans 6. And that's another reason why I take this view in the first part of verse 25 to be an exact parallel of what Paul told the Romans about themselves and their relationship to sin in Romans 6. Look over at chapter 6, verse 17. He's describing this idea that if we are to sin because we're not under law but under grace, he responds in verse 15 by saying, by no means. 
Do you not know, verse 16, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You remember that we said, Paul describes in verses 15 to 16 that everybody is a slave to something or someone. You're either a slave to sin... He says in verse 16, or you're a slave to obedience. You're slavery to sin, that leads you to further sin. And ultimately in that chapter he says death. Even in verse 16 he says which leads to death. Or you're a slave of obedience which leads to righteousness. And then in verse 17 he says this. This is past tense now. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Thanks be to God. He's encouraging the Roman believers. Yes, when you first acknowledged by the Spirit of God your sinfulness, you also realized the reality that you had been delivered from it. The Spirit of God came into your life, He showed you the nature of your sin, you confessed it, you placed your confidence and trust in Christ, and when you did, you realized that there was an exchange, there was a transference. Whereas once you were the slave of sin, now you are the slave of righteousness. And he says, based upon that wonderful reality, that wonderful transference, thanks be to God. And notice he says the same thing in chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only a mature Christian can say that. You see, he's giving the answer to the dilemma of chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who will deliver me from this body of death. He's the one who will deliver the wretched man. So, in verses 17 and 18 of Romans 6, you have a thanks be to God text for one-time slavery to sin, which is turned into a new slavery of righteousness. And likewise, in verse 25 of Romans 7, you have a thanks be to God text for a wretched man who is recognizing the tension between, between being once delivered from sin and an acknowledgement that only Jesus Christ can deliver us from the presence of remaining sin. You have two parallels there. Very striking parallels. Thanks be to God you were delivered as a slave from sin. And thanks be to God that you will one day be delivered ultimately and completely and finally from the body of this death. That's, I think, a description, of course, in two ways of a believer. Thanks be to God that this happened to you in the past. And thanks be to God that you will be delivered from it completely and finally in the future. That's another, in my judgment, compelling reason why this is talking about a mature Christian. Not an unregenerate man. An unregenerate man can't say that. And according to verse 25, it is God through Jesus Christ our Lord who is the very one that delivers him from this tension. This verse, among other things, is why I take the entire passage to be a reference to Paul's mature Christian life. Because he asks that very question. Wretched man that I am. 
Who will deliver me from the body of this death? But beloved, don't stop there. I think so many people who try to interpret this passage rightly, they stop right there at that phrase, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, then he gives the answer. Don't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. He immediately and emphatically answers his own dilemma for the discernment of the Christian life by saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Implied, of course, in this answer, Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, for He's not only delivered me from sin's penalty and its dominion in my life, He will also finally and completely and irrevocably and ultimately deliver me from the very presence of sin. That's what he's talking about. It might even be that Romans 7.25 is the precursor verse to the whole of chapter 8. It's giving us a little bit of a foretaste of chapter 8. Only a mature Christian can say that. J.I. Packer helps us here when he writes these wise words. Here's his identity of the wretched man of Romans 7. Paul is not describing here in this text, total moral failure. As if behaviorally, the wretched man never gets anything right in any sense at all. The bewildered and distressed consciousness that Paul analyzes is simply of a very much desired perfection not being attained. If the wretched man is indeed a Christian then he is the one who here and now serves God in the new way of the Spirit. Verse 6. Who lives not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And who actually does to death sinful habits through the Spirit as he goes along. Romans chapter 8, verses 4 to 14. Paul is not telling us that the life of the wretched man, listen to this, is as bad as it could be, only that it is not as good as it should be. You see the difference? It's not a forlorn passage which says, Oh, wretched man that I am without an answer. It's not telling me how bad I am. It's telling me how good I otherwise could be if remaining sin was being dealt with as it should be. He says, And that... Because the man delights in the law and longs to keep it perfectly, his continued inability to do so troubles him acutely. You see, that's a mature Christian response. It's, it's you and me and the discernment of what's going on in our lives. And when we've developed a level of maturity and sensitivity and acute awareness of sin, I say to myself, oh, wretched man that I am. Knowing that Jesus Christ, our Lord, will deliver me, yes. But as I live now in the tension of the already and the not yet, I recognize that my sin, although having been dealt with at the cross, is also ever before me. It's the thing that keeps me from getting closer and closer to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I want my sin to be dealt with. I want to say no to sin. I want to say no to the temptations of sin. I want to deal with it. 
It's not like the guy who says, I can resist anything except temptation, of course. It's not like that. It's the person who says, I don't want to sin. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do what's wrong. I see sin in my life and I hate it. It's, it's that wretched part of me. I want to be delivered from it. And Jesus Christ will one day indeed deliver me from it. But right now I'm living in the tension of the already not yet. Packer says the wretched man is Paul himself. Spontaneously voicing his distress at not being a better Christian than he is. And all we know of Paul personally fits in with this supposition. Yeah, that's right. Paul is, Paul is discerning wisely about his Christian life. I might ask you the question, is that your wise discernment about the Christian life? Are you looking at the totality of your life as you have come to him and ask the question maturely like Paul? I may not be as bad as I could be, but the problem is I'm not as good as I should be. I know that. I'm not as good as I should be. I need to deal with this. I need to have a... I need to have a ready answer to when sin comes knocking at the door. How am I going to respond to it? What's my plan? What's my agenda? We just read those passages of Paul's prayers and Ephesians chapter 6. What's my, what's my remedy? What's my cure? What's my antidote? What's my prescription for the flaming darts of the evil one? What am I going to do? I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to pray at all times without ceasing. I'm going to use the armor of God which God has given me at my disposal. I want to do the things that I know I need to do because while I know that I'm not as bad as I otherwise could be, I also know that in the tension of the already and not yet, I'm not as good as I should be. See, there's a striving here. There's a motivation here. This is not talking about an unregenerate person. This is talking about a mature person. And finally, number four. Paul's move from past tense in Romans 6 to present tense in Romans 7. Now this, I think, is a very, very good reason to see it this way. In Romans 6, for example, Paul speaks of our bondage to sin in the past tense. I read some of those. Look back at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God... That pivotal parallel with 725. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. That's past tense. You've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. This is all past tense here. He says in verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were, verse 20, slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See all of those past tense, past tense realities. It's talking about a person, himself and the Roman believers, for whom this reality has already occurred. But in Romans 7, look at verse 14. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. Present tense. I do the very thing I hate. Present tense. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. All of these are present tense. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I find it to be a law with wit, uh, that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. These are all present tense realities. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see, present tense, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells, present tense, in my members. Wretched man that I am, present tense. Seems to me that Paul is describing not some past condition of having been killed by the law, not just some kind of representative position for the Jews as a whole, not certainly Adam, but Paul himself. He's talking about remaining sin. He's talking in a very mature way about his present sinfulness. You say yes, but it says in verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin. That doesn't sound like a regenerate person. It sounds like an unregenerate man, like the person Paul was describing in Romans 6 who was still a slave to sin. But remember, you can't say that and then say what he does at the end of the chapter. You can't see, say, thanks be to God who will deliver me if you're an unregenerate man. You have to understand what he means by these phrases in their proper context. Listen to John Murray who describes what I believe is truly going on here. This is how he describes Paul. Quote, The more seriously a Christian strives to live from grace and submit to the discipline of the gospel, the more sensitive he becomes to the fact that even his very best acts and activities are disfigured by the egotism which is still powerful within him. And no less evil because it is often more subtly disguised than formerly. In other words, beloved, this is a very mature man who's speaking here. This man is speaking from his relationship to Christ. And he's speaking about the inner workings of sin in such a way that he could say, I delight with the law of God in my inner man. But then I find another principle at work and it's the principle that I have remaining sin in me and I see this tension and I don't like it. And the more I grow in Christ, the more sin I see. And even though the less sin there is, the more that's there, even though it's less, I don't like. I don't like it. I want to deal with it. I delight in the law of God. I want to follow it. I want to obey it. I want to see its inner workings in my life. But there's another principle that's here, and it is the principle of my remaining sin. As has been said, and very well, sin no longer reigns, but sin remains. And when it remains, it remains for me to deal with in a very mature, godly, forceful way. In other words, it may look like Paul is describing his old bondage to sin, but it is actually a very mature, seasoned awareness. A discernment, we could say. A discernment 
about his remaining sin, that even though he's been delivered from its condemnation, it is ready to pounce on him at every turn. And he's ready. And he wants to deal with it. He's looking back at the Christian life up to the point that he's living it and writing it here and saying, I know that I'm not as bad as I could be, but boy, I know I'm not as good as I should be either. I've got to deal with this. Packer again on this very important passage. Paul is not describing a struggle. This is interesting. Paul is not describing a struggle as is sometimes supposed, but a discernment. I know. I find. I see. Verses 18, 21, and 23. As seems plain from the context, refer to what Paul becomes aware of after acting. With much or little or no conscious struggling against evil urges, as the case may have been. He looks back and realizes that what he has done is not precisely the unqualified good he intended, so that he has not fulfilled the law as meant to do. Paul's text delineates a state of frustration at this repeated discovery, rather than an unavailing struggle remembered as such. He's looking back on his life. He's looking back as a mature Christian. And he's seeing this discernment. I know, I see, I want. But something's present within me. I can't claim that all of my works as a Christian are untouched by sin. I know that's not the case. I know it's not true. What is true is I look back as I know and I see and I do. I find that there are two levels of tension working its way in me. I delight in the law of God. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. In exegeting these verses, we must not forget what Paul told us in verse 11. That sin deceives to secure its effect. See, that's what sin does. Sin wants you to think that you're not as obedient as you are in the Christian life. Sin wants to manipulate you and deceive you into thinking that you're not as mature as you are in the Christian life. So what do you do about it? How do you respond to it? Well, first of all, you're honest. And you say, I know that there is sin in me. I don't deny that. I see it. But I also want to deal with it. I have a an urging. I have a hungering. I have a righteousness in my soul that I want to deal with sin as I otherwise should. I know I do. I delight in the law of God. I want to obey Him. I want to do what's right. So what do I do? Well, I look for all of the initial stirrings of sin in my life. And I see those for what they are. As someone said, when the water is most silent then the temptation is most ready to pounce. You think everything's okay. You see the stillness of the water, but it is then when the shark is about to attack. If you and I are looking maturely, discerningly at the Christian life, we're going to realize that Romans 7 is telling us that even though regenerate, there is a principle that is at work within us that even when we least expect it, sin will be most dominant. So what do you do? You look for any dominant sense of any particular sins in your life. You look at the list, the checklist of your life, and you say, what am I doing in the area of my eyes? Or what am I doing in the area of my ears? Or what about the relationships that I enjoy? Who am I spending time with? What am I reading? 
Who am I speaking to? And what are the words that I'm using? And when I see the pattern of particular sins in my life, how desperately motivated am I to deal with those sins? Do I want to deal with them for the glory and the sake of Jesus Christ? Do I want to say to God and to those around me, hold me accountable to the truth of these things? Do I say like the psalmist in Psalm 119, that I want to have the law of God as so resident within me that it tells me, it cries out to me authoritatively, put away sin in your life. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life. See, that's a mature Christian's response. That's what a, a Christian is all about. A mature, discerning Christian looks at Romans 7 and says, Ooh, I can relate to that. Oh, I can relate to that. I can see the issues in my life. I can see my weaknesses. I can see my, my sins. And when I'm tempted, I want to say no to them. I, I want to be exactly what Paul says here. And I know that I want to do the right thing, but sin is present with me. I agree with the law that it is good. Sin dwells in me. I have a desire to do what is right. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I, I do not want is what I keep on doing. I want to deal with that. And that's what Romans 7 is going to cry out for us to do. As we go through these, these verses, we're going to see a mature man, and you're going to need to ask yourself the question, am I that mature man? Is that what I am? Is that what characterizes me? As we close, I ask you the question, is this your perspective on sin? Is this your perspective? Well, what a great, mature, discerning perspective the Apostle Paul has about his sin. Now he says, I know that I've been delivered from the dominion of it, from the encroaching power of it to rule my life totally and completely. I know that, and I know that there's something in the future that will tell me that there's a final and complete glorification for which I'll be delivered even from the presence of it. I know that. But I'm living in the tension in between. I'm in the already not yet. I'm glad I'm not in the before the already. And I'm so glad, thanks be to God, that there will be an ultimate deliverance from even the presence of sin. But I've got something I've got to deal with right now. And that is the, the reality, the nature, the extent, the weight of prevailing sin. Remaining sin. Is that your heart? Is that what you want? Is that your desire? Ask yourself the question. When you turn on the television, when you have conversations at work, when you are thinking and no one else knows what you're thinking, but you're thinking in your own mind, what are you thinking? What's in your heart? Are you thinking about things that glorify Jesus Christ? Are you thinking about the things that honor Christ? Are you thinking about the things that would make sin less and less of an issue in your life? Or when you dabble with it ever so lightly, it's become... Such a temptation, such a, such a way about it that you're lured into it. That's the perspective that Paul is talking about. And that's the perspective that I want you to see. This is the perspective of Romans 7, 14 to 25. And when we study it, watch out. Because if you want to be a mature Christian, you'll find out how. Right here. Let's pray. Father, we are, 
we are about to be introduced to the kind of mature, discerning thinking that makes for a radical dealing with sin. Do we know? Do we have an understanding of what will make up the necessary approach to dealing with this remaining sin? Oh, Father, give us in the already not yet tension, give us the insight and the discernment like this man Paul so that we are very, very discerning and mature as he was in dealing with this that tempts us to disobey you, to dishonor you. Father, I pray that as we unwrap the various nuances of the tension that is described here, that we would be so convicted, so challenged, so ready to say no to the remaining sin in our life that we, like Paul, would be screaming, Oh, wretched person that I am! Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Oh, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who will ultimately do it. And He, the one, through His Spirit, will be the vanquisher even of present sin. As I trust Him and rely upon Him and look to Him to energize me to have a radical break with the remaining sin in my life. Lord, we know that this tension will carry us through. It will carry us onward even to our glorification. But we cannot rest there. We cannot assume that by inertia spiritually that sin will be dealt with. We must mortify sin in our members ever presently. And as we do so, we'll cry out, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We ask you, God, to make us so sensitive that we ourselves will be described as the wretched man for which the only deliverance is through Christ. For we pray in His name. Amen.